you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. John 14, I want to begin in verse 53. John 14, 53. So remember we left off. Jesus was in the garden. The betrayer shows up, kisses him on the cheek. He's taken away. Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against them, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Verse 60, And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent, answering nothing. So here we see Jesus before his accusers. He is being judged. Do you know that, that feeling? That, that feeling of being judged. What does it mean to to be judged sometimes we feel like we're being judged because we're guilty because we have a guilty conscience because we sometimes people speak the truth to us and we receive it as they're judging me when in reality they're just loving you right sometimes but then there are times when we genuinely are being judged we feel that way we sense that it's a terrible feeling and oftentimes we're judging aren't we you can't live this life you can't be human live in this fallen world and not judge we all judge we all judge things you have to some some judgments are necessary and good and life wouldn't work without them it's good to judge that the road is slippery and it's dangerous. You should judge that. What are you, you going to do? Just say, well, no, I don't want to be judgmental, so drive at your own risk. You see, we, it's good to judge that the coffee's too hot to drink. You don't just burn your lip off or let somebody else do the same thing. It's good to judge that a relationship maybe is unhealthy. You see, so there's, there's lots of good ways that we judge. But these aren't the kind of judgments that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the kind of judgments that Jesus is facing and that we've all faced and we know. We've all been the accuser in our heart. 
If you think about, for example, the things that fancy our culture, like how shows that tend to be most popular or prevalent on television today are shows that highlight people's dysfunction. Isn't that strange? That we as a culture, we, we really enjoy watching other people's brokenness, silliness, absurdity. Is it possible? That we like to see these things because they make us feel better about ourselves. See, when we see the, the hoarder living in the pigsty, there's something intriguing about that. And there's something soothing to the, 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 the heart that knows that Maybe they're not as clean as they should be, but they're not like that. Or watching a marriage in disarray unravel. Or reading about the pain of someone's broken relationships makes us feel better about our own. It seems like people love to see the dysfunction of an inept parent whose children are completely out of control. And it soothes our insecurities about our own parenting and our own children. It's not hard to compare, is it? You don't have to look far to find something to compare, do you? And then what happens when you step out of culture into church? Well. It ramps up even higher, doesn't it? It really intensifies. It's interesting. Look at this verse from Luke 16. Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. And he says, What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Here's what's interesting about that. He's talking to the most religious people on the planet when he said that. So we, it would be true, if you have your listening guide, you want to pull those out, that the better we become at being religious, the better we become at judging others. We have to be careful that we're growing in a relationship with Christ as opposed to becoming more religious. We have to be careful about all the things the Bible warns about the religious. You know, as we come to these times together on Sunday mornings, 
I think about all the, the people who, as we gather together, they use their gifts. The people who, uh, you know, held the door open and greeted you and shook your hand or welcomed you this morning or someone who came up and encouraged you or those who are caring for our children right now or teaching over in kingdom kids, those who will lead in all sorts of various ways, those who work in all sorts of uh, service areas that go on all over this campus, many of which you never see. But and I think about how every Sunday and Wednesday and when we're together, I'm exercising my spiritual gift. And I think about how uncomfortable I am in my own skin oftentimes. That it seems strange to me. It never has... You would think after 27 years it would, it would feel normal, but it doesn't. It would feel sensible, but it doesn't. It seems strange that God would call me to do what I do and yet in my heart I wouldn't have called me. I would have called somebody else. It seems strange that you know God would charge me with the responsibility to have something to say but that what I say wouldn't be of me but it would be of him. I, I never have gotten comfortable with that. And you know what? I think I get more uncomfortable as time goes on. And I think a lot of the reason why that is is because I'm not uncomfortable with what God's called me to, but I'm uncomfortable with what people expect of me. Right? That's the part that's uncomfortable. Because I, I know that I can't live up to it. I can't. In, in other words, I know you judge me. You just do. Because I'm Pastor Tony. And that makes me very uncomfortable. Because in my own skin, I'm just Tony. You see? So I just think about this issue of Jesus standing in judgment. I think, well, wasn't Jesus' mission the exact opposite of judgment? Well, yeah. That's why in John 17, Jesus says, well, I didn't come. God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now, that's very interesting that right after John 3.16, this is what Jesus would say. Why would he say that? Doesn't that seem strange to you? Isn't it strange to you that the, 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 the phrase that follows, for God so loved the world, the best news you could ever imagine... When was the last time 
When was the last time you... I want you to think of the last time that you, you gave someone just an incredible gift. Someone that you love very much. You gave them something that you knew was going to make them really happy. Did you go to them and did you give that to them? And did you say, here it is. And then you watched them unwrap it. And you were so excited and they unwrapped it and they took it out and they looked at it. And then the first thing you said was, now, I don't hate you. You didn't say that. Why would you say that in that moment? It doesn't fit in the context. Obviously, you don't hate him because look at what you just did. Why would Jesus, right after he says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the next thing he says, but I don't hate you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not bringing judgment upon you. Isn't that strange? Because that's what we immediately go to. We're suspicious. We're suspicious of God. We're suspicious of each other. We're suspicious people. We have trouble trusting that something good's really good. What compels us to, to, to wear the judge's gown underneath our clothes? To constantly be alert and aware and Can, can, I, can I make you smarter this morning? Because I, I want to. I just want to raise your IQ about five points. I can just teach you one simple thing that will just make you a noticeably, tangibly smarter person if you just can get this very simple thing. And it's going to sound simple, but I just want you to know before I say it to you, That the vast majority of people do not believe what I'm about to say. But it's so true and so simple, but they don't believe it because they don't utilize it. Okay? Everything you do, you do for a reason. You really should know that. That'll make you smart. You know what dumb people do? Dumb people think that they just do things because that is dumb. It makes you dumb. If you know that everything you do, you do for a reason, it will fix so many things in your life. You don't do anything for nothing. Ever. So why do we judge? We don't just do that because we're human. We do it for a reason. Why do we do that? Well, 
let's go back to the Genesis and look at the beginning. We'll go back to the garden again. So after Adam and Eve sinned, their first order of business was to hide themselves. Right? And God, as we see as his common response throughout Scripture, immediately takes action. Genesis 3, you can look on the screen here. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Well, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And then the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Remember that? So right off the bat, what we see is blame shifting 101, right? He immediately moves into this blame shifting. But here's what's underneath that. How did he get to that point? Why did he do that? He didn't do that for nothing. He did it for something. The same reason we did it. See, Adam had reached a verdict in his heart. He had already pre-concluded that his wife and God were guilty. Notice, he didn't deny that he did wrong. He just moved other people to where he is. He brought other people. He, he, it was through implication that he executed his verdict. Now, what, what compels Adam to judge? Even though he is obviously, utterly guilty. In other words, he's caught red-handed. There's no way out of it. And his default response is to move to blame shifting and self-protection. And isn't this what we do? We carry this gavel around with us. I was going to ask Judge Dickinson if I could borrow his gavel then I thought it's probably not a good idea but it was a fun thought I was thinking it'd be fun this morning if I was whacking this gavel you know up here but I just what didn't want any I mean I need at least have an official one right but that's what we do we we bring down this gavel we make this decree in our heart Yeah, you see, the simple answer is, is well, so we, we judge things, people, 
We make fun of things. We make light of things. We scoff at things. We critique things. But why? Why do we do this? Well, the simple answer is, is to make ourselves look better. We do it to make ourselves feel better. But why do we want to look better? So you have to just keep asking questions. You can't stop. Well, if we do it to, to look better, well then, why do we want to look better? Well, the answer to that is because we don't want to look bad. Well, why don't we want to look bad? Why are we so afraid to look bad that it causes us to self-protect and to deflect and implicate others and make excuses and come to verdicts? See, Adam committed sin. Adam looked bad. He was bad. He was caught. It was his choice. The choices that he made fractured the relationship that he had with God. He is totally at fault. So in his attempt to divert God's attention away from his badness, as if that's possible... What he does, he points the finger at Eve and then ultimately back at God himself. So if you think about it, it, it's not that complicated. We judge others to elevate ourselves. But that in and of itself is a bizarre thing. See, we feel safe elevated. Somehow we feel secure when we're in a position where we can look down on other people or where we know other people have to strain to look up at us. So what we do is we use other people as mirrors. We use other people to see a reflection of ourselves in and that's how we base our view of the world around us and our place in that world. And that's exactly the reason why it's so easy for us to judge others. is because we're on this quest to not feel bad. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to look bad. But see, every time we blow the whistle on someone else, the Bible teaches we're just condemning ourselves. See, that's the problem with putting yourself on the judgment seat. Is that we can't face the scrutiny that we put on other people. We can't stand the heat that we apply to those that we judge ourselves. Here's how the Bible addresses it in Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man... 
every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So here's what we all need to embrace this morning. We all need to just say, I have no excuse. You may try to come up with some excuse in your mind or in your heart for the way that you judge or how you judge or who you judge, but I have no excuse. You have no excuse. There is no excuse. And what Paul says here is that the judge ultimately becomes the judged. Now, some of you, the more advanced in religion you are, you, you begin to question, well now, what are you exactly saying? Because again, you're trying to self-justify what you do. You've been in church long enough. You've been indoctrinated enough. So you're, you're sensitive to this on one side or the other. Well, we absolutely must call sin, sin. That's, that's not what I'm saying when I say judge. I mean, Scripture's not saying never form an opinion about others because that's impossible. Scripture's not saying that there aren't people around us who have issues that need to be addressed. And that God uses us as vessels oftentimes to work in each other's sanctification. Scripture's not saying in any way that we shouldn't keep one another accountable. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But here's what Scripture is saying, is that when... We judge, we judge others the way that we would want to be judged. Because we all know the way that we would want to be judged. And we want to, when we judge things, we judge things with all information on the table. And we always ask the question, what is my motivation? What is my motivation? What is my motivation for thinking what I'm thinking, for saying what I'm saying? What is my motivation? And that's what begins to clear the way. Is my motivation the advancement of the person or the advancement of myself? Am I saying what I'm saying or thinking what I'm thinking because I genuinely love this person and I want them to be in a better place, a more healthy place, I care about them? Or am I just concerned about not 
appearing to be bad myself. See, Jesus would be a proponent of a culture of grace and truth that invites sinners to breathe the air of the gospel and be changed. See, Jesus never condoned sin, yet he didn't judge people wrongly. He always met the criteria. Grace always preceded truth. See, you can, you can say anything to somebody if they know that you love them, right? But if they don't know that you love them, then you have to proceed with caution. And even when they know that you love them, there should always be some caution. But So you come in, in grace, and then you speak truth. See, God's not going to need the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but he's, he's not going to need the Bible to determine if we were perfect as he is perfect. You see, when it comes to, to our judgment as believers, he's, he's not going to need his word for that. He's just going to use our words. He's just going to use our words. The words that we have spoken to other people, about other people. In our own hearts, we've spoken them. Even if they never came out of our mouth, he's heard them. He knows the thoughts and intentions inside of us. He's going to take every judgment that we've passed on others. Every time we've scoffed at somebody, we've put somebody down, we've mocked their belief or position or whatever. Every prejudice we've ever felt, spoken, exercised, he's going to use it as the measuring rod. And we'll have to give account according to that. See, in Matthew chapter 7, the Bible says, For with what judgment you judge, Jesus said. Matthew 7, verse 2, For what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So here's the thing, this all, so you may be wondering, so where's the paradox? Here's the paradox. This presents an insurmountable problem for me and you. What we've done so far this morning is just backed ourselves into a corner that we have absolutely no way of getting ourselves out of. Because what the Bible is teaching is this simple truth. That judged are the judges. Judged are the judges. 
Now think about that for a second. If we're all guilty of judging, which we are, and those who judge are going to be judged, which they will, we have a massive problem. See, in the Gospel of Mark, in verse 55, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. See, they all cast judgment against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. And then if you look down in verse 60, And the high priest stands up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? And the Bible says, But he kept silent, and he answered nothing. See, everything about this trial is illegal. It's all wrong. It's all concocted. You can't have a... You can't have a trial at night. You couldn't have a trial on a feast day. It's, it's Passover. You needed witnesses who agreed. They don't have that. All of this stuff doesn't fit together. And yet the Bible says in Isaiah 53, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So here he is, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Totally innocent before his accusers, and he's silent. Think about all the places in the Bible where Jesus is not a judge. He's proclaimed the judge. The one and only judge, 2 Timothy 4.1, Hebrews 10.30, James 5.9, Revelation 19.11. He is the judge, the only one true judge. And yet he's on trial. He's accused. He's taken the position of the perpetrator. He's, he's in the position of the wicked, the murderer, the liar. The tables are turned on him. So now what we have is love personified, becoming sin personified. There's a paradox. See, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For He made Him who knew no sin. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. You see that? The judge becomes the accused. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. That's a paradox. How does that happen? How can someone who is not sin, who has not sinned, become sin? There's the judge of the whole world on trial, himself judged. By wicked, corrupt, 
judgers. Has anything changed? Is God done with the, with the trial or is he still on trial? Are the judges still actively trying Jesus over and over and over again? Well, of course. The skeptics judge God. They judge, is he God? How could he be God? How could he be God if he does this? How could he be God if he does that? They judge him. According to what I understand to be good or right or this or that. How could God be this? How could he be that? Even people who believe that he is God still continue to judge him. We judge his decisions. We judge his actions. We judge his will for our lives. We form our opinions and our notions and our critiques and our ideas about whatever it is that he might be doing. And I want you to notice something, that as this mock trial proceeds and goes on, there's something interesting that's happening here that oftentimes we miss. That all of this injustice is moving forward, but yet if, if you know the whole rest of the story and the rest of the plan, what you realize is that God is actually using this injustice to accomplish His plan, right? It's very obvious here. But why isn't it obvious here? When you're looking at injustice, facing injustice, feeling injustice, seeing injustice, has anything changed? I hear people today, for example, whatever current events are going on, it's an opportunity to put God on trial, isn't it? If you're God, how could you allow the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine? Come on. Huh? Yet here's God using injustice to accomplish His good plan. We're fine with that as long as we're the recipients of his good plan, aren't we? Oh, yeah. But then we forget that and we see things that go on today and we think, how could God allow that to happen? We judge him. We drop the gavel. See, what we're doing is we're declaring that we know better than the sovereign king of the universe. See, every time we grasp for, for control or every time we are, you know, reeling in, in, in worry or anxiety, every commentary that we give on the way things ought to be, it's a declaration that we somehow believe in our heart that we know better. 
or that we could do better if somehow we were in control of the situation. See, oftentimes, that's exactly why we feel distant from Him. Because we don't like what He's doing. We don't like it. So we back away as if, you know what that is? That's our way of, try, of, of making God look bad. We back away from Him. Because we don't, we don't like it. We want to implicate Him. Somehow. We keep Him at arm's length. We don't want to linger in His presence because... We don't understand what he's doing. And if we don't have clarity on what he's doing, well, then we're, we're uncomfortable. We don't like it. So there we are day in, day out, putting Jesus on the stand in our hearts, ready at any moment to render judgment on him if he doesn't give us what we want or do things in a way that makes sense to us. Here's the scary thing. See, every judgment that we render on others is ultimately a judgment we render on Jesus. It's scary. It's scary when you think about it. And so here he is on trial, and they're, 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 they're chanting, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. He's falsely condemned. Declared guilty. He who knew no sin became sin. It was happening right there. The judge was judged in our place. Why would the judge willingly stand silent and allow himself to be condemned? Why would he do that? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why. See, in 1 Peter, here's what the Bible says in chapter 2. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. See, that's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not just that, you know, maybe you're like, well, I knew that, but do you know why? Why? It's not just because the Bible just says there's no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because in Christ, the judgment's already been rendered. 
So what does that mean for me and you? This morning, if we're in Christ, what does that mean? For all of us judges that are in Christ. Well, remember where we started. See, it means that we no longer need to fear looking bad, right? Well, sure. We, we don't need to defend. We, we don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to measure up. We don't need to compare ourselves. We don't have to make our point. No. You're so immature, American Christian. You're so immature. Why do you feel the need to make your point? And you have no, no motivation for the good of who you're making your point to. No one has ever read your post on Facebook and went, you know, I think I ought to change and be more like them. Mean and grouchy and judgmental. No one does that. You push them further away. But you could speak the truth in love. You could exercise grace before you speak the truth, couldn't you? Couldn't you? You could, couldn't you? You could. Why are you so quiet? You could, couldn't you? You know what grace is, don't you? You've received grace, haven't you? You've felt grace, haven't you? You've experienced grace, haven't you? So congratulations, you know the truth. Utilize the grace that you felt, that you've experienced, that has set you free. Use it. Rely upon it. It's a glorious gift. Because see, the judgment on you if you're saved has already been rendered. So now you stand as an accepted son or daughter. A beloved child of God. Look, I mean, draw in to this moment, to all this tension in the room. And let the resolution set you free. All this judging. Here's the crazy thing. Because of this paradox where the judge is judged on our behalf. You don't have anything to fear. What I mean is you don't have to fear being exposed. You don't have to fear looking bad. You don't have to fear that you fail. You don't have to. You don't have to anymore. Because praise be to God, we now know where we stand. Don't you see? 
because the judge was judged for us, we now know where we stand. So we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to hide behind our judgment. We don't have to judge others and implicate others. We don't have to put anybody down to feel better about ourselves anymore. We've been delivered from that in salvation because now we know where we stand. We stand as pardoned, righteous children of God. Listen, you come into this place this morning. If you're a child of God, you come as a child. As a child, loved, righteous, accepted, made clean. You don't have to hide anymore. Because you know what? We all fail and we all know that we all fail. But we've been forgiven. We've been pardoned because the judge went to trial for us. For our guilt. For our shame. For our failures, for all the things that humiliate me and humiliate you. All the things that that we don't want anybody to know. God took all of that upon Himself. He stood silent, utterly innocent. The judge of the universe, wrongly condemned, said nothing for you and me. So that we would no longer be condemned. So that we would no longer have to feel the need. To condemn others, to judge others, we never, because it's okay. Because it doesn't matter what someone thinks about you. It doesn't matter what somebody says about you. You know where you stand in Christ. See, nothing, nothing, nothing can compare to being a child of the God Most High. So why are we sensitive? Why are we frail? Why are we still hiding? Why do we still feel the need? To feel better about ourselves. By looking down at other people. Nothing can threaten your standing in Christ. Nothing. Just let that soak in for a minute. Wow. You see, there, there's no condemnation. Because someone else was condemned for us. So we don't, we don't have to be frail anymore and fearful and worried and concerned and we, we don't see here's the thing I don't need to look at anybody as a mirror to figure out how I fit into this culture or this world or into whatever it is I don't have to do that anymore because I just look at my father you can look at your father you you look at what Jesus did for you so that you no longer feel that way You don't have to measure up, Christian. Think about this. You don't have to measure up. 
Because He measured up for you. Think about what happened. He made Him who knew no sin become sin for you so that you could be the righteousness of God in Him. So we can no longer live as if somehow the mistakes that we've made in the past, listen to me. Whatever you've done in the past, if you're saved for the love of God, stop hiding. Don't hide ever again. You have nothing to hide from. Just stand up and be counted as the beloved child that you are. And turn your heart towards this one thing. Seeking out those around you who either need to experience what you've experienced or who need to be reminded Because they've drifted off course of what you've experienced and what they've experienced. You see? You, if you're saved, you belong to God. You belong to him. He owns you. He bought you. He chose you. He loves you. He shed his blood upon you. He's forgiven you. He's cleansed you. He's washed you. He's purposed you. He's planted you. He did all of that. Why in the world would you care one shred of anything what somebody else thinks? Who cares? You see, the judge became the accused. He put himself on the altar. He put himself on the stand. He... He made himself silent. The Holy One did the unthinkable. He became sin. He allowed condemnation to fall upon him so that the guilty could become pardoned. Praise be to God. How He loves us. It is a remarkable thing. So let's put the gavels down and let's breathe in the air of the gospel.
And let's be people of grace and truth. So here's what we're going to do. If you'll stand, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We need to get the community group.